0: I'm Luke Simmons,
1: and I am Seth Trout,
0: and we are here to
1: critique the hell out of culture.
0: Well, hey, Seth, Uh, welcome back to the podcast. I'm welcoming you to your own podcast, but to everyone listening, welcome. Uh, It's good to have you guys with us. Great um, Great to be together for another round. Sure of is. the King and Culture podcast. Uh, thanks for listening. You know, some of you have been listening for a long time. Some of you maybe uh, more recently. So if you're new, or welcome. A lot of times what we're doing in this conversation is really looking at the hellish aspects of culture that are also in us and trying to evaluate that biblically and theologically. Over the last few times, we've been having more of a theological conversation on the history of the Reformation. So, Seth, I can imagine a few people may be wondering, like, what does this have to do with critiquing the hell out of culture? Uh, to be talking about these, you know, historic reformed doctrines of grace, like what does that have to do with this?
1: A big part of it has to do with uh, what we're thinking about on this podcast. Often, connects to issues within the church. It's not just trying to throw grenades at the culture, quote unquote, but also the church culture and the things we assume within the body of Christ that are wrong. Uh, we did episode a couple episodes ago about just ver- varieties of heresies and bad theologies that have crept into the church. And we can't, as a church, ever assume good doctrine will be passed on. Like we always got to be reforming ourselves, trying to get back to the Scriptures, ad fontes is the message of the Reformation, back to the source, back to the fountain, trying to continuously update our tradition using the Scripture. We're trying to tr- critique what we've inherited using God's Word, and that's part of the idea, and we want to make sure we're doing that. Especially on these ideas of the Reformation doctrines, there's a little bit of an overlap, though. Uh, the humanist spirit is very strong in the Western culture. This idea that humans, through thinking and technology and, uh, and other things we call the myth of progress, this view that uh, humans have within themselves the collaborative effort to usher in uh, a Edenic state, a new heavens and new earth here on earth, that with human intervention and human morals, uh, we can bring about a better world. And that humanist spirit was really, really strong for a couple hundred years, especially post uh, the the Enlightenment. So in 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, uh, it was really strong. And some of the issues that Calvin's correcting here in these doctrines has to do with the way that humanism fused with Christianity and kind of over-promised on human agency and our ability to bring about goodness of our own merit. And a a big chunk of humanism or the modernist world was really shocked by the Great War and then the subsequent World War II that we realized that we thought with all this technology and progress we'd usher in the new world and instead we just ushered in more convenient and effective ways to kill each other. And so we need to be really careful when we're talking about what humans are capable of when they have tools in their hands. And it doesn't really do justice to the immoral or selfish human heart that we are actually inclined inward. We talked about that last time as we began these things. And so, in one sense, we're here critiquing the hell out of the humanist spirit when we're talking about the Reformation doctrines of grace. In another sense, we're critiquing the way that the church people, myself included, want to take too much responsibility for our own salvation and take some of the glory away from the Lord.
0: Well, and in a sense, that dynamic you just said of taking responsibility for our own salvation, that actually goes way before the modernist, you know, humanist spirit. That goes back to Pelagius and and early, you know, parts of the Christian church having debates about, about, you know, how much am I responsible for my salvation?
1: Well, it even goes back to Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve sin rebel, and they make for themselves fig leaves. They try to cover themselves and hide themselves and tell them for their sin on their own. But then God has to come along and make them real clothes out of leather using animal sacrifice. And so it's still, even from Genesis 3, sin is a problem that God solves, that humans benefit from the fact that he solved it. And... So the the tendency of humans to both be responsible for sin and then simultaneously try to be responsible for solving our own sin is a problem as old as the history books.
0: So a couple of episodes ago we talked about the five solas, the history of the Reformation, you know, around those five solas, uh, you know, Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. Uh, I'm missing one. I don't remember. Glory Got Alone. Glory Got Alone. There, there it is. Uh, so that was a couple episodes ago. Then last time, we introduced what's normally called the doctrines of grace or sometimes referred to as the five points of Calvinism. You talked about how that didn't actually or- originate from Calvin. It, it was after Calvin died. Some of the people who critiqued him and his followers, and they got into back and forth. And So ultimately what we're trying to do is not really look at calvin or augustine or anyone else we're trying to ultimately go back to scripture but as we look at these doctrines of grace before we dive into this one i guess one of the questions i have is how essential is this right like you mentioned earlier ago we we did some episodes really or an episode related to heresy right if someone goes you know what okay i hear what you're saying about total inability and i see hear what you're saying about conversion and the you know god calling people to believe just like Jesus called Lazarus from the grave. And today we're going to talk about the doctrine of election. You know, I I don't, I don't know that I see it exactly that way. I see it from more of a, you know, what some might call an Arminian perspective or whatever. Like you, like, is that a huge problem? Like how essential is this?
1: I would say it's a hugely moderate problem. (laughs) Uh, But going back to 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the issues of first importance, Uh about the death and resurrection of Jesus, his death for sin. I would not put this in a first importance issue category. I'd probably put it in a second, some of these in the second order, some of them is in the third. I think it's important. I think the Bible teaches it. I could frankly argue with people about it until I'm blue in the face because I really believe it. However, it's one of those issues that I'm decreasingly willing to divide over it in the sense that as I meet with church planners and uh, church pastors and leaders or directors from other churches in the Valley, like through uh, – a lot of them don't hold to these doctrines and I'm unwilling to like break fellowship with them over it. Yeah. Like I think when it comes to leading a local church, trying to be synced up on this stuff as much as possible is really important. But even then, like our membership packet is intentionally more broad than even going here because we want there to be a good degree of freedom on the, the extent or the detail to which people agree on this, understanding that it can take people a lot of years to, wrap their heads around what we're trying to say, especially if you grew up in different environments and not everybody exactly has the time to go and read a bunch of books about something right now. So it might be a number of years before someone spends the time thinking about it. And frankly, the the main goal of this is that it'd produce humility. I was talking to someone the other day about how I would much rather have in my church membership someone who's a thoughtful five point Arminian who's really congruent with the fruits of the spirit, or the fruit of the spirit, mm-hmm. love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, who is humble, who is eager to serve, who loved people, then some kind of like anal fussy person who grew with me on the five points. Yeah. That I, sure. think, I do think that, once, especially once you go to second and third tier issues, character to me is going to trump the details of alignment on some of this stuff. So I think it matters as far as, Like, really, what does it mean that God unconditionally loves us? Mm -hmm. A lot of that's what this is, is spelling that out. What exactly does it mean that he loves us unconditionally? Mm -hmm. Not conditional upon our own choices, even. Not conditional upon our own uh, works of faithfulness or unfaithfulness. Not conditional upon even, like, our doctrinal fidelity. But he loves us unconditionally. We're not saved by doctrine. We're not saved by works and we're not even saved by faith like faith is a means of mediating grace to us we're saved by grace unconditional love what does that uh, really mean and so i think it really is encouraging to christians to grasp the depth of that that i'm not just possibly saved i was never in question that i was going to be saved but there's a hymn that says he came from heaven he saw her to be his holy bride yeah you know with his own blood he bought them you know and, and for their love he died that like I was sought out by God and he purchased me. Yeah.
0: So, so first order importance is Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, repent and believe in him, experience eternal life, experience union with Christ. What we're getting at is is, is, is is the
1: Trinity. It's the creedal stuff.
0: We're getting to the second layer below that, which is sort of to go, well, but how did that happen? Like what was going on? Um, in eternity past, what was going on in, in the spiritual realm that you couldn't see, like what was what was happening that really helps explain your decision to follow Jesus. Um, so that's what we're really looking at through yeah, this conversation. We're
1: not saying it's unimportant, but we are saying it's not of first importance. Yeah, And I think that's the key here. Okay. And, and I hope for a lot of folks... Which
0: doesn't mean we don't really strongly believe what we're going to talk about.
1: Yeah, and for a lot of folks listening, I hope that for some of you this might be the first time you've ever even considered some of these things. And I just wanted to say that it takes time. Like I think when I first was exposed to like some of like what the Bible says about this stuff, it probably took me a full two years to not just intellectually wrestle with it, but to emotionally wrestle with it. Yeah. Um, To come to grips with what the Bible taught to uh, kind of work through my own internal like objections, both like both like emotional and I mean emotional judgmentally because emotions are mostly a function of relationships like my emotional relational engine but then also my intellectual engine so it takes a
0: while so uh let's get into it then what are we talking about today
1: today we're talking about election choice
0: like trump or biden yes
1: (laughs) is it rigged or not
0: (laughs) (laughs) not that kind of election oh yeah yeah
1: we're talking about the word "eklectos" in greek means called or called out okay as though like there is a group and you're called out of a group. Uh, there is a choice, and you're chosen, and that's where the doctrine of election comes from. And uh, in review, last week we talked about you know how natural men cannot embrace the gospel, kind of First Corinthians two fourteen, uh, that we actually lack the ability to respond to the general call on our own. The Spirit has to give us a new heart, and so here is the uh, definition of unconditional election that I'm working with here. <clears throat> I think this is a Luke Simmons original definition. Oh wow! Okay. You may not remember this.
0: So this is fun because for those who, you know, listening in here, Seth and I taught a class about this, and he has some of the notes from that class in front of him, but I do not. Yeah. So, uh, all right, let's see. Luke is experiencing it live. Yeah, where did I steal this definition from is the question. Go ahead.
1: God determined in his grace to save a great multitude of guilty sinners from every tribe and language and people and nation. To this end, he foreknew them and chose them. His choice was based on nothing, but rested solely on
0: God's good pleasure. I think that's actually from Tom Schrader, uh, who was the founding pastor of Redemption Gilbert and used to teach about the doctrines of grace, but I'm not sure where he stole it from. (laughs) Will you read that again?
1: God determined in grace to save a great multitude of guilty sinners from every tribe and language and people and nation. And to this end, he foreknew them and chose them. His choice was based on nothing within these people but rested solely on God's good pleasure. Mm. So that's what we mean when we say unconditional election or even what I would say is when you say when you say God unconditionally loves us we're saying he didn't love us back after we first loved him but like the bible talks about that uh, he first loved us. Yeah. unconditionally. It's not like like I love my wife conditionally, <laughs> you know, like
0: I saw some- And more importantly, she loves you conditionally. <laughs> yes.
1: Like I saw something in her and i was like i would like to marry her based on yeah how she is what she's like what spending time with her feels like like what yeah. like what we have in common like it was it began with like here's a list of things reasons why whereas god looks us looks at us and he's not like man that's seth i know he's a guilty wretched sinner but when we hang out it's a good time he's yep. looking at us going based on nothing i've seen in him I just love him unconditionally. So it's not like I. If it's unconditional, it means I can't lose it. It yeah. means that it's not like he he married me for my hair. Now I don't have hair, and now mm-hmm. I'm, I'm I'm toasted. You know,
0: so <laughs> what's funny? I mean, in hearing that uh, definition, I I just I think of so many verses, right? So many biblical passages come to mind as you read that, and uh, yeah, it's it's. I mean, even even just the idea that God chose to save a multitude, like how cool is that? That like there's. A multitude of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. I was just this morning reading Revelation seven, and Revelation seven has that exact thing in it that, you know, people from every tongue and tribe and nation are gathered around the throne, and they're saying salvation belongs to our God. And uh, yeah, I just think that's so cool.
1: And we take that for granted, every tribe, tongue, and nation, but we forget how radical that was in the ancient Near East. Oh yeah. But usually there were gods that were regional gods, the way they understood them. Like there was the god of the Canaanites, and there is the god. Of Babylon, and then the Romans had their gods. And even nowadays, there are like the way that different nations conceive of the god of the nation, right? This is like one of the ways that nationalism gets like really wonky and unhealthy is when you think that we that there's a god of our nation, and that's just not true. God is not bound by some tribe, not some tongue, not some nation, that he's transnational and he's for everybody. And so, he's not a regional god, he's a global god, yeah, and he's the universal god. And so this this idea, these three big words, that God saves sinners.
0: Mm-hmm. Praise God.
1: All Christians believe that, but we're trying to just flush that out. What does it mean that God saves sinners? What does it mean that God loves unconditionally? So God follows on the Spirit, saves, that he does everything, first to last, bringing man his glory, and sinners, us, um, people who are guilty before God, people who have been sinned against and have sinned against others, helpless, powerless, unable to save ourselves, and so here's like the crux of the emotional problem for me. Okay. and This is like, as I wrestle with these doctrines, the hardest thing for me to come to grips with is this fact. God could have saved nobody and would have been justified in doing so. Mm-hmm. That's the hard thing. Like when you really believe what the Bible says about us being sinners, what we talked about the last couple of weeks, when you really believe what the t- Bible talks about, inability, that God could have created the world And humans, without exception, would have rebelled and said, I'll go my own way. And God could have said, okay. Yeah, wow, sure. And just wrestling with that, that God could have done that and been totally justified. And so God really has these choices. He could save some, he could save all, or he could save none.
0: Right, because nobody deserves that. Nobody deserves it. Everybody has fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone has sinned. All have Turned aside together, they've become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. It says in Romans three, so yeah. I mean, he he would have been totally just to save nobody. Yeah,
1: and and so I think wrestling with this question, God could have saved none, He could have saved all, and he, but He chose to save some. Basically, all Christian, like I would say, all Orthodox Christians understand that God saves some. That's the Bible teaches that many mm-hmm. multitude. Sure, uh, no Christians believe that. God saved none. Otherwise, what are we doing here? Right. There have been a very few minority called universalists who say that God saved all, uh, which I think, again, the Bible clearly doesn't teach that. So what we're really talking about here is I'm not going to argue about why God saved none or why God saved, didn't save all, but fleshing out wasn't God saved some. So Tim Keller has this great point where he says, so why doesn't he save all? He said we can only know two things. First, the answer must have something to do with his perfect nature. He is perfectly loving and perfectly righteous and neither can be preferred over the other or he wouldn't be God to be perfectly loving and righteous. Somehow the answer has to do with his being consistent with himself. Second, we cannot see the whole picture. Why? If we can conceive of a more merciful system of salvation than God has, we might not see it rightly. For God is more merciful than we can ever imagine. Indeed, when we finally see the whole plan and answer, we will not be able to find fault with it. Yeah, wow. So Keller talks about this in a variety of different ways, that if I have a God powerful enough to be mad at, then I have a God powerful enough to exceed my understanding. Yeah, sure. And that's some of where this comes from. And so in my own heart, in my own wrestling, the biggest hangup on a lot of these doctrines of grace for me has been like, until I really come to grips with the fact that God could have saved nobody and been justified in doing so, I'm going to have a difficult time grasping the rest
0: of what he has to say about these things. Well, and, the, and what comes to mind as you as you say all that is there are passages that seem to indicate that God actually wants to save everybody. Yep. right? So I think about 1 Timothy 2 where it says God desires all people to be saved um, or other passages that say that, you know, he does not wish that any would perish but that all would come to the knowledge of God, which seems to go, well, wait a minute, hold on. And this is really a question for every Christian to answer is like, How is it possible that there's something God wants that doesn't happen?
1: Whether you're an Arminian or a Calvinist, you have to deal with that.
0: Right. Right. Like like the Bible doesn't make it sound like, you know, well, God could have chosen all and he could have chosen none and he could have chosen some. And, you know, the thing he wanted most in the world was just to choose some. It actually makes it sound like the thing he wanted most in the world was to save everybody and yet not everybody saved, which makes you go, well, then why not? Yeah. Was, Was his arm too short to save? Well, no, the Bible says that's clearly not the case. So what's going on there? Well, is it It must be our choice then, right? It must be that, well, this is what God wants, but we just didn't want it, and so God's a gentleman. He's not going to you know, make us do what we don't want to do. And so, I mean, ultimately, it, it comes down to us. I mean, I think that's how a lot of people make sense of that, is that different than how you make sense of it.
1: Yeah. Well, So we're getting into what we're talking about now is like the wills of God, God's different wills, that in the history of the church, they've di- distinguished between the active wills of God, in the passive wills of God,
0: okay, or the so if you say that that makes me okay. Active is what God does, what God wills, like what He brings about. Yeah, and passive is that what He allows to take place,
1: or what He like wants, okay, but is not doing anything about. So active or passive will. Another way of talking about that is the decretive, mm. the will of decree, or the prescriptive, the will of command. Okay. Right, so in First Corinthians it says that it is God's will that you be sexually pure. This is something God wants. Yes, and if nobody's saying like God's will is happening all the time on sexual purity, like nobody's saying that, sure, because clearly nobody is fully and perfectly obeying God's will on that. It's God's will to be sexually pure. Uh, So that'd be a prescriptive will or the passive will. It's God's desire, like His heart for us. Uh, It's like the fatherly desire, right? It'd be like. so you have a kid who's thinking about going to college, wants to go to college. Mm-hmm. And yep. it, there'd be, like, a difference between, like, what you want in your heart for her, um, but you're not going to, like, enforce it. Sure. Right? Like, you're like, ah, I really want her to go to Illinois because I went to Illinois, and Illinois is in the family. You know, right. want, want, want Abby wearing orange. You uh-huh. know, if you, like, deep in your heart, like, really wanted that for her and wanted that for your family. But then, like, actively, you're going like the decretive will is I'll support you to X degree financially. Right. That's what sure. I'm sure. Yeah. Like, there's like what I want. There's what I'm going to like make happen. Yeah. That makes sense. And so that's active passive will or will of decree or will of prescription. And so when God, uh, is, doesn't want people to perish, like he has this like fatherly affection, this desire for all persons everywhere. But his will of decree is that which he makes happen. Okay. Like his willingness to overcome our resistance. And so that's what we're talking about here in election. Um, even like some of the texts that get confusing, and so I'm going to, in First Timothy, it talks about how God desires that all would be saved, or that all, God desires that all be saved. Right. We, that verse gets taken out of context all the time, because in context that is talking about Jews and Gentiles mm. being saved. Okay. So like that is best understood as like, hey, God doesn't just want Jews to be saved, he wants all people to be saved, meaning Jews and Gentiles. So that's talking about uh, without reference to ethnicity, he wants all kinds of people to be saved men and women, Jews and Gentiles, uh, tall people and short people, right? That's uh, all kinds of people that yeah. okay. he's trying to fold in. But anyway, let's get back to like what the Bible says about election. Okay, So the first thing um, is that God does the choosing. And so reformed folks are more comfortable with this, but actually all Christians believe that there is a choice. The question yeah,
0: because ultimately if, if God saves some, then, well, who? Yeah. Does he you know, Who limits? And, yeah, does he choose unconditionally, or does he choose people based off of something else, especially their his knowledge of their future choice for him?
1: Yeah, is God kind of doing divine plagiarism, meaning you chose me and I chose you? Like, uh, <laughs> he's taking credit right. for our choice. You say, God saves us on the basis of our choice. Well, that's actually not unconditional love. That's conditional love.
0: So God choo- God does the choosing. God does the choosing. I assume there's some verses about this.
1: Yeah, for we know brothers loved by God that He has chosen you, first Thessalonians one, four. Later on in Thessalonians or Second Thessalonians says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through the sanctification of the Spirit and believe in the truth. And so that first fruits to be saved is this of the new creation being made new that God gave us new hearts. And we are part of the first fruits of the new creation being saved, and, that, and that's based of God's choice of us. There are other texts that refer to that, but this choice didn't just happen later on in history; it, uh, it happened before the world's creation. Mm-hmm. Is Ephesians one? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so again, different than, you know, like I'm trying to convince Taylor to marry me when we're like 19, 20. And eventually she chooses me back. You know, it's, yeah. you know, there's before he, I even knew him,
0: before I even knew of Well, him. before the foundation of the world is like, before there was ever sin. Before there was a world, <laughs> yeah. before there was a good world that was then corrupted by sin, before, before we were ever in it. Before he Genesis
1: 1 happened, God had looked down the quarter of time and said, I'm going to choose some people who are going to be uh, called out from among the dark folks. Hmm. Uh, the darkness, not the dark folks. They could be misunderstood. So in uh, 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9, it says, uh, Shared his sufferings for the gospel with the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began in 2 Timothy 1. So God did the choosing, he chose, so the when he chose was before. And the why he chose, uh, so this is point number three, it was based not on our merit, or not based on any merit within the elect. Hmm. Even when we see this when God's choosing Israel, he tells them, just to be clear, I did not choose you because you're better than other people. He says this in Deuteronomy 7, seven. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for the fewest of all peoples is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath. He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand. So he's like, if I was going to just kind of work on return on investment, I would have chosen Egypt uh-huh. because they're the big, powerful people. And man, if I could get those people saved and the trickle down effect on world trajectory, would be pretty good. He's mm-hmm. not just doing kind of economic trickle down effect on spirituality. He's choosing actually people on the basis of like their non obvious choiceness.
0: Yeah, it's funny. Molly was just teaching in kids ministry in the large group yesterday about um, how, uh, you know, God chose the shepherds, showed up to the shepherds. And, uh, you know, he didn't show up to royalty. He showed up to these stinky, out-of-the-way, low-regard shepherds to announce the birth of Jesus, you know. And that just seems to be a pattern of God. He doesn't look for who we would think he would choose, but he looks for who he wants to choose.
1: Yeah. Uh, we see this in the New Testament, 2 Timothy 1, nine. He saved us and called us to holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his purpose and grace. So the grounds are not merit, but grace. Romans 9.11, um, though they were not yet born and done nothing good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, that God is choosing people not on the basis of works, not on the basis of doing good or bad things, so when I hear like non Christians say like God could never love me, yeah, who are you to say that? Yeah, first of all, um, you fit in the category of everybody. Uh huh. Yeah, that God's not choosing people on the basis of well, you don't know what I've done, you don't know where I've been, you don't know what I've seen. It's like actually you're a little more humble than a lot of the Christians I know, and so for yeah. <laughs> that, that basis you're kind of ripe soil, um, but also there's not a shot that anybody Christian or non Christian can say. I'm more or less likely for God for to be a Christian or to be saved because it's not on the basis of good or bad that people are chosen.
0: I heard one time of the story of some missionaries that were doing some work among prostitutes in Southeast Asia, and these women thought, that well, there's no way God—they started hearing the gospel and going like, well, that sounds great, but there's no way God could save people like us. And they actually—these missionaries started appealing to the doctrine of election yeah, to say, well— this God doesn't do this based on how good or bad you are. He does this based on His the purpose of His will. And who are you to say that God couldn't save you? You know, and it actually began to unlock their hearts a bit, and they came to faith.
1: How dare you say that your sin is too much for God to overcome? Yeah, I think that's part of God's audacity in this is you can't outsend my grace. And so that's part of His purposes is yeah. He's is He's interested in. And being worshipped and receiving glory because it's good for us, and it's good for us to make much of Him and think less of ourselves. Number four, this choice was also not based on God's foreknowledge. So God does not look down the corridor of time.
0: Well, it is based on His foreknowledge, but there's some funkiness about that word, right?
1: Yeah, it's not based on His foreknowledge of our faith,
0: right? So, so that people get confused about this because you know, really, in Romans eight, it talks about those whom He foreknew. He also predestined, which that seems to be kind of like what you, I, get, I think you called it divine plagiarism, but it's that idea that God's looking down the quarters of time and he's seeing people that are going to choose them. And he goes, Aha, I'm choose you before you choose me. Uh, you know, kind of a, that sort of a thing. Well, it's divine it's plagiarism. Not, it's not foreknowledge of their future faith. Foreknow for there means something different.
1: Yes. Yeah. There it's like people that he knows personally, he's conforming. Uh, but it's, it's kind of like middle school crushes. Okay. Like I remember seventh, eighth grade being told like, Hey, she likes you. Do you like her back? It's like, Oh yeah. It's like, what do you like about her? Well, I like that she likes me. <laughs> right. <laughs> I like being liked. That's yeah, what I sure. like. Right. I like the way knowing that she likes me makes me feel. Does that mean I like her? You know? And, yeah. and it's kind of like God treating us like a middle school crush. Like I like that she likes me. Yeah. I'm interested because she's interested.
0: So it's not based on God's future knowledge of our decisions or of our future goodness or of our future faith. But when the Bible says that he foreknows us, it's saying like in a sense he's he's having a relationship with us before before we know him, he knows us. Yeah.
1: He knows us deeply. Uh not in like a creepy stalker way, but in like uh yeah. the same way that like
0: he's set his love on us. Uh he's known us in that way. Yeah, in, in the advance.
1: same way that I know my daughter, despite, like, her inability to say my name. Yeah. Like, I know her. Right. And I know her more than she knows me. There's a huge gap at this point. Uh, and it will remain a gap for a very, very, very long time. Yeah. Uh, so it, this is, I'm going to read a couple of verses here. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Romans nine sixteen So, So it's not just uh, the... He's not choosing us on the basis of our morals or our merit. He's also not choosing us on the basis of our will or our desire or our faith. So It's not like, oh, they trust us, therefore I choose them. It's I choose them, and therefore they're going to eventually trust me. Acts 13, 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, the gospel being preached, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many who were appointed to eternal life believed. And so uh, their belief was the result of, of them having been appointed to eternal life, not their eternal life being the result of their belief. Hmm. Uh, Philippians 1, 29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, that belief itself is part of the gracious grant. So we don't receive grace on the basis of faith, but faith is the result of grace. So we see that in Philippians 1, 29. In Ephesians 1, 5, and 6, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons of Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. So we are adopted as sons through Christ, according to his will, according to the purpose of his will. So it's not on the basis of our psychological experience of of sonship, but it's actually on the base of his will. That's like the grounding of the
0: promise. So it's like, God, why'd you do this? Because I wanted to. Well, but why'd you want to? Because I wanted to. Yeah. And I think that's some of what's, Actually, a little bit frustrating to people reading the Bible is we'd like a clear answer, and uh, you know, well, it had to be for some reason. And he's going, well, yeah, it is for some reason. That's what I wanted. <laughs> and we go, but, but bah, bah. you know, but that that doesn't seem like enough. And but what about them? And uh, you know, but but there really is just this reality of going according to the purpose of his will to the to his pleasures, like that's what he wanted to do. Yeah, one of my favorite verses
1: on this mystery is the secret things is Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, Hmm. that we may do all the words of his law. So there's two parts of this that we need to emphasize here. One, that there are things that are secrets to God. That's one category of things. And there's a separate category of things, things that are revealed.
0: You said said secrets to God. You mean they're, I mean... Only God knows them. Okay. Yeah, so it's not... It's not that so, God doesn't know. So
1: there are two types of things, things that only God knows, okay. and other things, things that are revealed. And one, we don't like that because our humanist spirit believes that our knowledge is infinite and we should know everything. And if I can't understand it, then I'm immediately not on board. And if I can't know it, then I'm out. Um, I had one of the pastors at Preaching Collective one time, I made some comments about something. I forget exactly what it was. And he said, he looked at me and he said, I either disagree or I don't understand Probably the latter one, <laughs> and I appreciate his honesty because he's yeah. like, I don't like it, and I think it's because I don't understand it. But also, I might disagree, and, and I think yeah. that this reality is: I think a lot of times we don't like something; it's because we don't understand it. And so, there are secret things that belong to the Lord, but there are things that are revealed to us, and the things he reveals to us are that we might do all the words of his laws, what it says in Deuteronomy twenty-nine, twenty-nine. And so, when it comes to matters of being faithful. We have enough information to know what God is calling us to do. And the things which he's kept to himself uh, are not required for us to know, for us to do what he's called us to do.
0: So if you go back and you read those, I think, were there five sentences there? Five points within that point? We got one more. Oh, we got one more. We okay. got one more within this. And then, so, and
1: then we'll recap them all. We'll recap them, yeah. So God's choice is based on just sovereign mercy. Okay. So if you think about mercy and grace, sometimes they are used synonymously, but they're not. Right? Grace is getting what you don't deserve, right? Grace is to be understood as blessing. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Okay? Yeah. So mercy is the withholding of judgment. Grace is the bestowing of gift or blessing. Okay. So they obviously go hand in hand because in being saved, we receive mercy, a.k.a. not the wrath of God. We sure. also receive grace, relationship with God, and blessed connection with him forever.
0: Yeah. So this is... What interesting... I mean, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow yeah. to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Like, these are parts of who God is in his character.
1: Yeah, salvation is both not getting what you do deserve and getting what you don't deserve at yeah. the same time. Mercy and grace. So this is based on mercy. Um, God's choice to not give us... Not give us what we do deserve.
0: What is that sound? Were you hearing that in the microphone? Yeah, I think it's a sink in the other room.
1: Okay. Check, Abby. Please delete (laughs) this part. Thirty-five, something. Should we make a note of that? Yeah, I will. Okay. So his base on his mercy. This is Titus three, four and five. When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness but according to his own mercy by the washing of a generation of the Holy Spirit. So God's uh, desire to not give us what we deserve despite deserving it, Titus 3, 4, 5. Also we see this in Romans nine sixteen, It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who gives mercy, gives and has mercy. God's uh, capacity to withhold the, the crushing weight of wrath that we deserve based on our own rebellion and a desire to live without reference to him. Okay. Which is gratitude. So those five uh, things with the Bible says about election, one, God did the choosing, two, God's choice was made before the world's creation, three, God's choice was not based on merit within the elect, four, God's choice was not based on man's foreseen faith, and five, God's choice was based on sovereign mercy. Okay. So that's the broad teaching of what the Bible said about election, kind of correcting the misunderstandings there.
0: So you read, I mean, you read a lot of verses in the last 20 minutes talking about this. um And obviously though, it's it's not like some slam dunk that nobody resists. I mean, so it's like, based on what you were saying earlier, it seems like, you know, the the challenge here is not as much an interpretive one as it is an emotional one. Like the, the textual evidence seems very overwhelming that this is God's choice. This is God's sovereign mercy. It's not based on anything you do. And yet there is something that makes it hard to swallow for us at at more of an emotional level.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting, especially within kind of suburban culture where the oppression is or suffering is maybe lesser a degree than other places. Uh, there's a pastor of one of the Repshire congregations who's uh, pastoring a largely minority church, and he was talking about how a lot of like pastoring people through who, um, who have experienced evil. So what he says is like the question of like how could people do this to us? Like how are they so evil? Like how can they not see what they're doing? Yeah, that in those communities, the doctrine of election and like the hardness of heart and the like inability of people to like not do selfishly inclined to evil without God, like actually encourages that community Mm because it enables them to have even empathy for their oppressors. Okay. Like Martin Luther King Jr. Talks about this, how when you see the power and grip of sin on someone, you see the way that sin dehumanizes them and how there's like, even within themselves this inability to not do that apart from God's intervention. And it gives you the capacity to humanize and have empathy for even those who do evil against you because you see the, the tight fisted grip of sin on people. And even going back to that whole question of, I think part of the issue is going, do I really believe that God could have chosen to save nobody and be justified in doing so? Or would that have been just totally not fair?
0: Yeah, because that really, yeah, it does get to the core of it. Because it's like, I've never had someone go, man, I got a huge problem with that God chose me. It really is more like, well, but why didn't he choose them? Why didn't he choose her? Why didn't he choose him? Right? You have some friend that, or some family member that, you know, dies not knowing the Lord and you're going, well, wait a minute. Is this God's fault? Cause God could have chosen them, but he didn't. It, like that doesn't feel fair. Like why, why some and not others? Yeah. And that's just remarkably difficult.
1: I think the fact that uh, we have a sovereign God who judges sins and he chose not to save all people. And even if you're, an Arminian, or you reject these views, you have to emotionally wrestle with the fact that God could have made conversion more obvious. He could have yeah. written on every single person's wall, John three sixteen, when you're born, and he could have given every single individual person a vision. says, hey. Right, sure. Hey, Seth, I love you. Please choose me. I'd love it if you came to faith in me. I can't, you know, and... Yeah. So whether you're Armenian or a Calvinist or none of the above, you got to deal with the fact that God could have made it easier to choose him or he could have, like that's the Armenian side of things. Yeah, sure. The Calvinist deal. Uh, but that whole question of like how God goes about doing this and to what degree people are responsible is, is a really difficult emotional question that I think we have to be honest with about. Some of that is just the secret things that belong to the Lord. He's not going to tell us exactly. Why he set it up this way, and that's, that's so
0: for so for you. Why did um, really come to grips with the idea that God could have saved nobody? Why did that help you turn the corner? Do you think?
1: I think it helped me in that recognizing the depth of my own sin. Because I think part of what I realized through this process was that I didn't believe that I was totally worthy of hell. I believe, yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, I'm inclined to selfishness. But God will get over it. And I'm not all that worthy of hell as much as I'm worthy of correction. Okay. You know, Uh I need to be disciplined. I don't need to be punished. Okay. And trying to wrestle with, like, do I really believe that apart from God's gracious intervention, I would go to hell? Or do I think that, apart from God's gracious intervention, I'd be a slightly worse version of myself. And so I was wrestling this in my freshman, sophomore year of college. Like, do I believe the depths of what the Bible teaches about sin? And going, man, I think part of what I'm having resistance to here is I'm dealing with the fact that God could have chosen to not save me, and that wouldn't have been him mistreating me. That would have been actually justice. Do I think that's true? Or not? And having to come to grips with the fact that that would have not been him mistreating me. That would have been justice. Yeah. And so there's like a, it mostly made me deal with how, what do I actually think about my own salvation in the depths of that? And then it was thinking about, is it not fair that people who want nothing to do with God have to spend eternity apart from God, despite, is that fair? You know, like Mm -hmm. C.S. Lewis talks about how um, there's only two types of people, those to whom Say to God, Thy will be done, and those to whom, in the end, God says to them, Thy will be done. Yeah. That people their whole life go, God gave me life and breath and a body and relationships and life, and screw them. I'm gonna do my own thing. I'm gonna figure it out myself. I'll do it my way. Like, do I really think that that rebellion is worthy of, or would require separation from God? And and I think kind of wrestling yeah. on those levels was part of that process mm-hmm. and going, is it like actually grace and mercy that I'm saved, or is it on the base of some type of conditionality? And so it was very personal as I wrestled through some of that. Yeah. And God's a good judge and that's like a big part of it when like friends, family that are at least on the surface, were very far from God, perish in their sin, going, Well I don't know for certain Where they are or aren't. But on the basis of everything that I could see, they died away from God. Yeah. I have to trust that God's a good judge. That he sees more than I see and he knows more than I know. He's writing a story better than what I can grasp, comprehend. I think
0: of that question in the scripture, you know, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? You know, in the end, he will. And we know what we know, but that's not that much. Yeah, and that's a big
1: part of it. Like in the end of the book of Job, Job's all mad at God for letting bad stuff happen to him. And then God asked Job all these questions. Were you there when I laid the foundation of the earth? Yeah. Meaning like, hey dude, stay in your lane. You are so limited. Right. And I think about the gap in comprehension. So if I'm finite and I take like my dumb dog at home, Calvin, there's a pretty severe gap between comprehension between myself and Calvin. Pretty severe. But The gap is larger between myself and God. It's just way bigger, you know, and I'm way freaking smarter than my dog. <laughs>
0: yeah, I'm glad to hear that.
1: So much yeah. And I'm way more valuable than <laughs> Yeah. But
0: so so we've talked about why this is emotionally hard. Um share, what does this do for you if you if you embrace this and go like, yeah, this I really this actually is true. This is what the Bible teaches. How does that how does that change anything for you? And especially how does it change it positively? How does I this affect I, your relationship with God?
1: I'd say there's two things that when I'm really like tuned in with this stuff, one is just my gratitude for God in and of himself is way higher. Mm. Like life can be difficult. You know, work can feel like a curse. Parenting can be exhausting. Friends can create tension. You can stub your toe. You know, there's so many reasons to like moan about Whatever and when i for a moment reflect on that god unconditionally loves me like that gratitude is just reorienting hmm. just absolutely like it is the whininess buster <laughs>
0: yeah you know like that I, sounds good we need that
1: like i in just the the gratitude it fuels and the certainty and security provides that if it's really based on grace Then I don't need to feel insecure today about did I do enough or or good enough. Yeah. I can know it's like purely on the base of God's grace. And so I'm grateful. And that is, I think, one of the most powerful emotions to break through cynicism and complainingness and whiningness and moaningness. So that's the biggest one. Okay. Uh, Second one is it it creates a humility Mm. that I don't walk around feeling like uh, I figured it out. I would don't, at least I ought not walk around feeling like that. Like, Hey everyone, read the books I read. Like that's Gnosticism. Mm-hmm. Like it's not secret knowledge. It's God loves me. And I hope that you can like see the fact that he loves unconditionally too. And it also like lowers the anxiety I feel around trying to like wrench people into becoming Christians. Cause I ultimately know that the most effective thing I can do for them yeah, is to pray for them. Yeah. Because God's going to change his hearts. So this, In Acts 18, it says this. or And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you or harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. And he stayed for a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So on evangelism, uh, so I don't think we can lay hold of the promise that no one will attack you or harm you, because that's specific to Paul in that time and place. Uh, but he's saying keep telling people the gospel because I'm with you and there's many in the city who are my people and Paul stays for a year and six months because the people who God has chosen need to hear Paul speak the gospel. And so there's um, this promise here that I can do evangelism sharing people like, hey, the Lord Jesus loves you and he died for you and he rose again from the dead. And I can say this to people with clarity of conscience saying, there are some people that are God's people and they're going to hear that eventually and they're going to go like, I believe that and they're going to be given new life. Mm-hmm. And so it actually fuels evangelism that God's ordained the means by which people be saved yeah. is me in love speaking the truth to them. And I can do that in a way without trying to like hard sell them or seal a deal or ABC always be closing. Like it's yeah, sure. I'm not trying to close a sale. I'm trying to help people acknowledge the full the love of God on them. And it's important, like, even when it comes to evangelism, like, Charles Spurgeon said this, if God would have painted a yellow stripe on the backs of the elect, I would go around lifting shirts and preaching to them. But since he didn't, I must preach whosoever will, and then whoever believes, I know that he's one of the elect. Meaning, yeah, That I can actually, with curiosity and love, without trying to manipulate or coerce people, tell people the gospel, and they can experience genuine, my genuine affection and regard for them, and trust that the Lord's going to sovereignly work his plan. And for me, I recognize that in God's sovereign will, he works through the, the obedience and prayers of his people. And so I can pray and not anxiously love people and trust the Lord to bring about the results he intends.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, are there any other last thoughts about this uh, truth of election? Uh, nope. I, I think my, again, my hope, especially
1: those who are the gateway listening is that you'd let this begin the conversation, not end it. Yeah. I'm sure some of you heard what we said and just hated all of it or maybe hated some of it and say like I just want you know that I felt like that for a couple of years wrestling through some of those things too Uh, and I just want us to like the main takeaway is we need to be grateful and humble and prayerful as we move forward in the mission that God sent us on and if if the results of our Calvinism are something besides that we're totally missing it
0: yeah well, and just so you know, we are planning on doing a kind of Q&A podcast about this where we're going to try to gather up the best questions we've heard people ask about this and see if we can answer those once we've gotten uh, through the various things. So if you want to add your questions to that, be sure to email us. Uh, you can email me at simmons at com or Seth Trout. That's two T's at the end of Trout uh, at RedemptionAZ.com. But yeah, we'd love to get those questions and include them if you have them in, the, in an upcoming episode on that. Um, but yeah, Seth, thanks for your work on this. Thanks for your heart. We want a big God. We want us to be small. And um, and we want to be true to what the Bible says, even if it's kind of hard to grasp. So I think this conversation helps us do that.
1: Yeah, thanks, Luke. Yeah, please, All right. Please answer your questions.
0: See you next time. <laughs>